morning, church. If you have your Bibles and you want to get turned to the book of Habakkuk, uh, we're in the Old Testament and the Minor Prophets again. Uh, But before we jump into our text this morning, let's have a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day. We thank you for your word. We thank you for the many uncountable blessings that we have because of your presence, because of your work. Lord, we pray that today, uh, as we study your word, that your, your spirit would move and shape and mold our hearts to see and trust that you are at work even when maybe we don't believe it or understand it. Lord, it's in your precious and holy Son, Jesus' name, that we do pray. Amen. Like I said, turn to the book of Habakkuk. I believe it's the eighth of the twelve minor prophets. Probably the easiest way is either look in your table of contents or go to Matthew and then backtrack until you find Habakkuk. It's a short little book, just three chapters. We're going to look at the first 11 verses of chapter 1. The oracle that Habakkuk the prophet saw. O Lord, how long shall I cry for help and you will not hear? Or cry to you violence and you will not save? Why do you make me see iniquity? And why do you idly look at wrong? Destruction and violence are before me. Strife and contention arise. So the law is paralyzed. And justice never goes forth. For the, for the wicked surround the righteous, so justice goes forth perverted. Look among the nations and see. Wonder and be astounded. For I am doing a work in your days that you would not believe if told. For behold, I am raising up the Chaldeans, that bitter and hasty nation who march through the the breadth of the earth to seize dwellings that are not their own. They are dreaded and fearsome. Their justice and dignity go forth from themselves. Their horses are swifter than leopards, more fierce than the evening wolves. Their horsemen press proudly on. Their horsemen come from afar. They fly like an eagle swift to devour. They all come for violence. All their faces forward. They gather captives like sand. At kings they scoff and at rulers they laugh. They laugh at every fortress for they pile up earth. And take it. Then they sweep by like the wind and go on. Guilty men. Whose might is their God. Holy Spirit, we ask again that you would. Incline our hearts toward your word. We might be taught 
directed by it. So, welcome to Christ Church this sixth day of 2019. It's crazy that it's already 2019. <sighs> We're going to be studying through the book of Habakkuk. And not to give you all the reasons, because there are too many to, to share with you in, in just a few, in a minute or two, but. Uh, I, I've been wanting to go through a, a, a prophet in some form, some form or fashion, uh, really since as as we got closer to closing uh, our Romans series, the Romans and Genesis series. We've been in that for a, a long time, and so it's been a while since I've been having to think what book are we going to go into next. And I was like, you know, we never really studied through uh, a, a prophet, and, except for Obadiah, which is which is only one, which was only one week, but. Uh, so I wanted to go into a, a prophet, and minor prophet kind of made sense because they're a little bit shorter. And then, and then Advent was almost entirely in the prophets, actually entirely in the prophets. And so I kind of, kind of wavered a little bit, and I thought, well, there's two options. We can, we can either kind of continue because we've laid the groundwork and continue in the prophets, or we can jump away so that we don't get bored with the prophets. And I decided to kind of continue with the, the legwork maybe that has already been laid, the groundwork. Habakkuk is, I'm excited to study through Habakkuk, like I am literally every book that I've ever preached through. Uh, Habakkuk is, is, is different. Different in, number one, it's a prophet. And so as we go through the book, we're, we're, we'll, like we've done, like we did through Advent, we have to think differently about the, the text that we're studying. We're going to have to take a different approach than maybe Romans or even Genesis. But Habakkuk is is Interesting because it's different even in comparison to the prophets. If you look at all the prophets, say, for example, if you just turn one book ahead to Zephaniah. Zephaniah in, in verse 1, uh, he says, in the time of, in the days of, in the last part here it says, Josiah, the son of Ammon, king of Judah. Which clues us in that Zephaniah is preaching to the people in Judah. That's a people group, obviously. It's the people of Israel, the southern kingdom of Israel. But if you turn one book in front to Nahum, Nahum, he says, says in verse 1 of chapter 1, an oracle concerning Nineveh. Now, Nineveh was also preached to by Jonah. Nineveh is the capital city of Assyria, which is a foreign pagan nation that actually conquers and destroys the northern kingdom of Israel. But it's also a people group. Then you have uh, Obadiah, which we studied in the past. It's been like five years, but we studied Obadiah. Obadiah is speaking to the people of Edom, which is a brother nation to Israel. Edom is the descendants of, of Esau. Israel is the descendants of Jacob. Jacob and Esau are brothers, brother tribe, brother nation. Every other prophet is speaking to a people group. What marks prophecy more than anything else in Scripture is that the, the prophet is chastising a people. Habakkuk is different. Habakkuk doesn't accuse Israel of anything or accuse any people group of any, anything. Actually, Habakkuk is accusing God. 
Now, this seems very unusual. It seems sacrilegious, maybe. How can, how can we accuse God of anything? But that's what Habakkuk is doing. And I think that this book, in particular, really hits us today. I think what we will find as we study through these three chapters is that it almost seems like Habakkuk could be speaking to us today in our culture and in our current situation. We know very little about the man. In fact, the only thing that we know about Habakkuk, and I'll eventually stop saying Habakkuk so many times, promise, is found in verse 1. Right? Verse 1 says, The oracle that Habakkuk, the prophet, saw. That is the extent of what we know about this man from Scripture. Most of the other prophets are at least mentioned in Samuel or Kings or Chronicles. So that we have some additional information. Or, or maybe people like Isaiah and Jeremiah and Daniel and Ezekiel what we call the major prophets, which have larger sections of, of scripture, of writing that has been preserved for us, are found in other ancient sources, other ancient Jewish texts. Habakkuk is gone. He is almost entirely an enigma. We learn one thing about him, that he is a prophet. Now, that should seem obvious because he's in this collection of prophets. But he's different in that he he calls himself a prophet. He gives himself the title of prophet, which is completely unique. Most of the other prophets in Scripture don't call themselves prophets. They just simply speak. They say, thus says the Lord, things of that nature. This probably means that Habakkuk was a temple prophet. He was probably a Levite in his vocation, paid vocation, was prophet. Now this this alters our attention just a little bit. It's very possible that this book was put to music because he lived and worked at the temple, because he was dedicated to this craft at the temple. He probably had more tasks, more jobs, than just simply proclaiming this through his ministry. I think it would be interesting, Wes, here's a challenge for you, is he even in here, to put this to music, the Hebrew to music. Yeah. It is in poetry form, and so it very easily could, could happen. Based on the context of the book, this is probably being spoken somewhere in the late 7th century B.C. Now, I had to check myself on this because when you say late 19th century, you mean, right, somewhere, or late 20th century, excuse me, you mean somewhere between 1970 and 1999, late 20th century, right? Because okay. it's, the numbers go up and that makes more sense to us. Late seems longer. In BC, late means early, number-wise, smaller numbers. So somewhere between six 70, 630, see I already did it backwards, somewhere between 630 and 601 is when Habakkuk is preaching this. 
Now context, and I'll keep the context at a minimum as we go through this, or at least I'll try, is Assyria in Nineveh, rather. Nineveh is conquered by the Babylonians in about 612. And then Judah is conquered by the Babylonians in 588. So there's about a 24-year period where Babylon is essentially crossing the Fertile Crescent to conquer the world, which is what Babylon does. They conquer pretty much the known world. This is the context. This is the, the historic backdrop in the minds of the people of Judah. Now, this is still early enough that Babylon is not at the door of Jerusalem. But they're sort of, they're on their way. And this is where Habakkuk starts to preach. Verse, verse 2. This is, the, this is a complaint that Habakkuk will make. And the structure of the book is you have, we have two give and takes. Habakkuk accuses God of something and then God responds and then Habakkuk accuses God and then God responds and then, and then Habakkuk gives these woes, which we'll talk at length about when we get there in the second part of chapter 2. And then chapter 3 is a prayer. In verses 2, 3, and 4, Habakkuk accuses God of something. He says, O Lord, how long shall I cry for help and you will not hear? Or... Or cry to you violence and you will not save. Now I said that this book is made up entirely, except for verse 1, of Hebrew poetry. Hebrew poetry is marked by one thing in particular. It's called parallelism. I'm not going to spend a lot of time over the course of, of our series here talking about parallelism. But I want you to understand at least sort of what's happening. You'll notice that that sounds fairly repetitive. And that's because that's what parallelism is. Typically in, in, in Hebrew poems, it's, it's two stanzas make up one, what we call verses. You see, line one, stanza one, is how long shall I cry for help and you will not hear. That's, that's line one, but that's split into two parts. How long and you will not hear, A and B. And then you have a re repetition of that, and there's some change happening to what we first read. Or cry for violence. How long, how long shall I cry for help or tell you that violence is happening? That's verse, that's A and A and then B and B. You will not hear. You will not save. I hope that structure makes sense. I don't want to take too much time on it because it can get boring. It does help us understand the emphasis that Habakkuk is trying to make. The people of Israel, right at this particular point, or probably better put, the people of Judah at this particular point, are kind of crumbling. They have, they have enemies that are all around them, and they're fighting off these enemies, but the, the biggest enemy that they have, or probably better put, the biggest enemy that the righteous have are the non-righteous part of the community. The people who are tearing the, the, the nation down, not by their not by their violent acts, but by their wicked hearts. 
And Habakkuk and many of the other righteous people who are trying to follow after the Lord, they're looking at the situation they're living in and they're saying, why is God not doing anything? To, to borrow what we've been talking, what we talked about all through the Advent season, where is God? Why are bad things happening to good people and good things happening to bad people? How long? How long? He clarifies a little bit more as he goes into the next section. In verse 3, why do you make me see iniquity? And why do you idly look at wrong? That's where it gets starts getting serious. Now, now here's what he just said to God. You see the wickedness and you're doing nothing about it. Have you ever felt that? Shake your heads, yes. We live in a world full of brokenness and, and, and every single person, Christian or not Christian, is gone. well, if there is a God, why is this happening? How long? Destruction and violence are before me. Strife and contention arise. But verse 4 really gets it. This is where he really drives home what the problem is. Because there's, I think there's different kinds of, of trouble that happens in our lives, right? There's trouble that you go, okay, that's just life. And then there's, then there's crippling. Then something else is happening. He says it here. He says, so the law is paralyzed. Destruction and violence, strife and contention, these things are rising up and paralyzing the law, morality, righteousness, goodness are being, are being crippled by this action. Justice never goes forth. For the wicked surround the righteous. The wicked are winning. So justice goes forth perverted. Now notice, notice again there's that parallelism. He says, justice never goes forth. And then he says, justice goes forth perverted. You can't have it both ways, right? This is very typical Hebrew prophetic literature. It's hyperbolic. It's, it's exaggerated to make the point. And really, he's kind of right. Perverted justice is not justice. So justice really can't go forth. But something is going forth being called justice. And, and really, what is that? It's injustice. Now, let me ask you a question. Do you, think, do you think that we can maybe claim some of these descriptions for our time today? Just think about the world. Think about the world that we live in, right? Think about just marriage for a second. Think about the attack. The seemingly calculated attack that wickedness has been making upon biblical, monogamous, man and woman marriage. It's starting to get to the point. We, we, have, we have passed the point where if somebody asks you about your sexual history between husband and wife, and you say, actually, I've only ever been with my wife and only after we were married, that is a shocker. 
So much so that now it's even looked down on. I can't believe you didn't test things out before you were married. What happens if it's no good? Well, you've missed the point. In fact, all statistics and all, all science that has been made on this point favors Christians in their monogamous relationships, but it's a different conversation. The world wickedness has made an attack on godly marriage. And I can guarantee you in, in the near future, in, in all of our near future, there will be a shift from accepting normal, good Christian marriages to them being looked down upon, to them being hated, to them being stood against. This is what was happening in Israel. This is what is happening here. The same is true for countless moral stances. For love and compassion, for taking care of the orphans and the widows, wickedness will ultimately seek to bring it to an end. And we live in a world that, at least from the surface, seems like it's attacking Christian morality. Not just in America, in the Middle East, in Africa. In Africa right now, the church is exploding, by the way. Did you know that? church is exploding in Africa and in the Middle East. And yet, there's monstrous persecution. Isn't that amazing? I think it's amazing. And then God responds. Now, if you were God, just imagine for a second, and, and only for a second, because I don't want you to go too far here. Imagine for a second you're God. And your puny creation, who has done only wickedness in your eyes, comes to you and says, what are you doing? How would you respond? You pathetic ant. That's not what God says. That's not how he responds. Aren't we happy? That's not how God responds. He says, look among the nations and see. For I am doing a work in your days. And hear this, because this is shocking. That you would not believe. It doesn't stop there. You would not believe if told. What? Yeah, I would. Try me, God. You want me to prove my point? God has been saying this since the dawn of creation. And still we struggle to believe that God is completely in control. Every single person in here, every single Christian that has ever lived has questioned whether God was in control. And God has not only said it in his word, shown it to us in our own lives, but has continued to do so, and yet we still don't believe him. Because we do this one thing. I will believe that you're in control if what you're doing makes sense to me. Right? 
Once you have moved out of that realm, once you start doing things that don't make sense to me, now I'm not entirely sure if I believe you. Look at the next verse. For behold, my favorite word in Hebrew, hene, precedence of existence. Get your attention. Pay attention if you're not. He says, for behold, I am raising up the Chaldeans. Anybody shudder? No, you didn't because you don't understand. You don't, you don't get that gut reaction that the Israelites would have gotten. The Chaldeans are known for a number of things. They conquer the world, but they're known for being pretty much the worst group of people to ever exist in control of the world. They are violent. They are, they are wicked beyond measure. Now, I'm going to do something, and I want to first, I want to first say I'm not trying to make a prophetic statement. But I want you to get the gut reaction that they would have felt. Let me change one name. Imagine God speaking to us today, and he said, For behold, I am raising up ISIS. Now, would we believe God? Is, is God going to use the wicked and evil, by their own admission, violent people to do his work? That's exactly what he's saying here. Let me prove my point. He explains it to us just so that we know that God knows that the Chaldeans are a wicked people. He goes, he goes on in verse 6. That bitter and hasty nation who march through the, the breadth of the earth, seizing dwellings that are not their own. They're conquering people. They're taking their land. They're taking their stuff. They're pillaging. They are dreaded and fearful. Fearsome, excuse me. Their justice and dignity go forth from themselves. What does that mean? Their justice and dignity. That's, that's their definition of justice and dignity. Because they were marching through the earth, raping and killing and, and stealing and taking all their stuff. And they're going, yeah, we're all right. We're good. Their own decisions were being made. In verse 8, their horses are swifter than leopards. They're fast. They're more fierce than evening wolves. They're violent. Their horses, horsemen press proudly on. They're arrogant. Their horsemen come from afar and they fly like an eagle, an eagle swift to devour. You ever watch the Nature Channel or Discovery Channel or whatever? You see an eagle soaring majestically in the sky and you go, man, that's why. That's our bird. And then all of a sudden it swoops through the sky after its prey. Rarely misses its mark. This is Babylon coming to destroy. And then it gets, it gets more serious. And he says, they come for violence. Their faces are forward and they gather captives like sand. There are times in human history where, where humans have gone to war, to fight wars for just reasons. Israel in the Old Testament fights many nations for just reasons because God wanted to enact justice in the world. 
America went to war in World War II for just reasons. Just so everybody is clear on this, Hitler was very, very clear that he hated the Jews and he wanted them gone. Now, when the atrocities of the concentration camps came out, it was a little shocking, but it shouldn't have been. In speech after speech after speech, he spoke vile wickedness in in opposition to a people group. And Hitler was only one of three wicked leaders during World War II. The Japanese were saying the same thing. We are a superior race and every other race should be eradicated. Stalin and the, in, and the Italians, while they were probably the least effective, were, they were saying the same thing. We, we went to war and we, and we justified it because, because wickedness can't run the world unrestrained. And I think we should have. But let me tell you, what, what God tells us is that the reason why the Chaldeans were waging war was not for just reasons, but for violence. They're sociopaths who wanted to kill and create chaos for chaos' sake. They gather captives like sand. Remember how the Old Testament describes how many Israelites are going to be? As numerous as the stars in the sky and the sands of the seashore. The kings, they scoff at rulers. They laugh. They laugh at every fortress because what a pathetic attempt to defend yourself. Then he says they they pile up earth and take it. What he's he's portraying for us is that they, they they took some excavators and they dug a big old hole and made a big old pile of dirt And then they just attacked it because they could. Now, did they really do that? Probably not. But that's the picture that he's painting. Your fortresses are nothing. We'll we'll walk through mountains. We'll walk through mountains without even questioning it. Then they will sweep by like the wind and go on. You ever try to stop the wind? When you were a kid, I did it all the time. Windy day, you go out and lean forward. You ever see on the news, those, those news reporters who want to stand in the hurricanes? And Do we ever win? Even if you can withstand the wind forces, even if you can stand still there, the wind is not being hindered by you at all. These are the Babylonians, these are the Chaldeans that God has raised up. And just so we're clear, God in no way thinks that these people are good, righteous people. He says it to end. Guilty men whose own might is their God. I am doing a work in your day, but I'll tell you about it and you're not going to believe it. God is in fact in Control. Even if we don't get it. While it's difficult to say that here at the end of verse 11, it is the biblical truth. It is what the Bible teaches us. That all things... 
work for good for those who love God. And I can honestly say, when I look at how I try to plan things, I'm glad he's in control. Now, Habakkuk is going to respond to God here in verse 12 to the end of chapter 2, or the end of chapter 1, excuse me. And God is going to respond again. And when God responds again, we're going, to, we're going to find some sense of hope. But right now, all we see is a confusing message of trust. I think what God does here when he responds to Habakkuk's complaint is he says, look, you won't get it. But still trust me. And so that's how I'm going to close. Not with, a, not with a picture of hope that I can trace from this point on to Christ, while that would be good, but a challenge for your own hearts. That as we sit, and hopefully sit uncomfortably through the remainder of this week into next week, when we will pick up chapter 1, verse 12, and see how God continues to teach us, I hope that we sit and dwell on this fact. Do I truly believe or do I trust that God is in control? Could I say, if God did, that I am raising up ISIS, that I still trust God? It's a challenge that has been quite difficult for me this week as I've been preparing this sermon. And I hope it's just as much of a challenge for you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord God, we thank you that you are in control. And we ask that you would teach us to put our trust even when we don't understand. Lord, we know that your scripture teaches us that you are good. But sometimes life doesn't. Lord, teach us that in those moments that we would seek you, to seek to understand how exactly you are good. We know that, that our faith in you is not, is not blind. But as that have has had evidence piled up before us in your word, in the history of the church, in our own lives as individuals. You have shown yourself to be in control and not just in control, but good. Help us to believe and trust in that truth. It is in your precious and holy son, Jesus' name.